First Timothy chapter four, verse 12, the servant's personal growth. Paul writes to Timothy, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. In this chapter, in chapter 4, Paul has exhorted Timothy what it means to be a good minister in verses 1 through 6, a godly minister in verses 7 through 12, and now a growing minister in verses 13 through 16. We know that it's the nature of living things to move from immaturity to maturity, we know that something is wrong when something fails to thrive or fails to grow. The good servant or minister preaches the word, we've discovered, practices the word, and through that preaching and practice finds himself or herself advancing, growing, maturing in the word. Again, Warren Wiersbe points out, quote, a growing pastor will produce a growing church. For a man cannot lead others where he himself has never been. He writes, how could Timothy, or any believer for that matter, make progress in the Christian life? Unquote. I love that. That's an excellent question. How can we make progress in our Christian life? Let me ask that question just a little bit differently. Am I making fruitful and faithful progress in my life? Am I moving forward? Am I standing still? Am I going backwards? Paul is going to give an answer to Timothy. Throughout, again, the passage, we warn and, and instruct believers about false teachers. How do we grow? We warn and instruct people about false teachers in verses 1 through 5. We nourish ourselves in Christian faith and doctrine in verse 6. We avoid foolish speculations in verse 7. We exercise Christ-like character in verse 8. We exercise reason and we understand our godly purpose in verse 9. We're prepared to suffer reproach. We're prepared to suffer misunderstanding. We're prepared to suffer criticism. 
Sometimes we get email. And sometimes we get notes in the agape box about everything we're doing wrong. We labor and command and teach these things in verses 10 through 11. Now Paul tells Timothy, here's what I want you to do. I want you to model this behavior to others. I want you to be an example in verse 12. I want you to devote yourself to public worship in verse 13. I don't want you to neglect your spiritual gift in verse 14. I want you to give yourself entirely to what the scriptures say. And then I want you to tell others what the scriptures say in verse 15. I want you to guard yourself and the biblical teaching that's been entrusted to you in verse 16. In short, Paul gives Timothy some rapid fire exhortations. Preach the word, verses 1 through 6. Practice the word, verses 7 through 12. Avoid spiritual fast food. Be known for godliness. That means cultivate and reflect Christ's character, which is the fruit of the Spirit in verses 7 through 12. And again, in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, here I think spirit in part means enthusiasm, in faith, I think that this in part means faithfulness, and purity. So we look a little closer at the servant's spiritual disciplines in verse 12. Read with me, won't you? Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. I don't remember if it was Mark Twain or if it was... I'm trying to remember who said it. Someone said, youth is wasted on youth. <laughs> I can, maybe it was Oscar Wilde. I can understand how you could come to that sentiment that youth is wasted on youth because once you push a little past youth, you go, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? Why didn't I take advantage of those younger years? In many ancient cultures, particularly in the culture to which Paul is writing to Timothy, the Greek culture, the Roman culture, um, this ancient first century culture, maturity was honored. And because maturity was honored, for many people, they thought that youth was dishonorable. Clearly, age does have its advantages. I'm not simply speaking about senior discount at Sweet Tomatoes. I love going to the line and going, one of us is a senior, but you have to guess which one. When Ronald Reagan campaigned during his second presidential bid against Walter Mondale, the question from skeptics was if Ronald Reagan's advanced age might prove to be a problem. Reagan replied, well, 
I want you to know that I will not make an age an issue in this campaign. I'm not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Paul encourages Timothy to not allow anyone to despise his youth. That word despise is very interesting in the original language. It literally is graphic. It means to look down or to turn down the nose. Whether we're turning down the nose or upturning the nose, we all know what that means. It's despise. And again, the word for youth, it's neotes. In the Greek language, oddly enough, it could mean anyone under 40. Now, isn't that interesting? Teens and 20s, as you're making your way through maturation. How old was Timothy at the time of this writing? Because of the writing and because of the word that's used, I'm inclined to think that he is somewhere north of 25, but south of 35. He's young. What's interesting, we are not in control of other people's prejudices. There might be people who have a predisposition towards thinking that with youth comes immaturity. But that's not necessarily true. Paul knew that age was not an issue. Really what was the issue is so far calling and character and gifting and maturity. These were the elements that were necessary to serve and lead. My friend Greg Laurie became the pastor of one of the largest growing churches in America at the age of 19. My friend Skip Heitzig, when he was 27 years old, became the pastor of the fastest growing church in America. Spurgeon was 18 years old when he took over the church in London. The servant leader has to make sure that he or she doesn't give critics reason to stoke the fires of unjust criticism. Because the reality is, it is calling and character and gifting and spiritual maturity that makes all the difference in the world. And so Paul tells Timothy that the servant leader is to be an example, note, to believers. And of course, you know what this means. It doesn't mean bad example. We know what example means. Oddly enough, in the original language, it literally, it was a word that describes a pattern or a model. 
Some of you can learn quickly and effectively. Some of you learn by looking at others. You model what you see from mom or dad or from brothers and sisters or the world in which we live. Now, it is true that nobody's perfect, but nobody's perfect can't be the model for pastors and leaders. According to Paul, they have to be examples to believers in the world in word, conduct, love. The word conduct, by the way, means way more than just your any given behavior at any given moment. That word probably has something to do with the pattern of behavior that you acquire and then cultivate throughout your life. Here, conduct more approximates our word lifestyle, pattern of life, way of life. There are certain things that you may have started doing when you were very young that followed you into maturity and then into to more maturity. You may have always been curious. You may have always loved cars. You may have always loved science and math. You may have always loved planes. You may have always loved cars. There may have been something that grabbed your attention early on and it followed you throughout your life. It became a part of your lifestyle. And so for Paul, he is telling Timothy that he is to be an example in his lifestyle, be an example in speech, be an example in, in lifestyle or personal conduct, be an example in love, be an example in faith, be an example in purity. I don't have time, but I want to, I, I need to dig just a little bit deeper into this passage because it is so rich. It is so wonderful. Look at this. He says, be an example in speech. I'm going to suggest to you that not only what he's saying, but the way that he's saying it is powerful and important and useful. He says, be an example in your speech because our words matter. Our words can complicate or facilitate communication. Speech is the tool that God has given to us for communication. My favorite two-word definition for communication is shared understanding. In other words, it's not communication unless both the giver and the receiver understand what's happening. Chuck Swindoll famously gives an illustration of, of pulling into a gas station in Texas and he is now the chancellor and will, will at least for a season will remain the chancellor of Dallas Theological Seminary. And so there's this person pumping gas and he says, what are you doing here? I've come to learn. What's your major? Speech. Communication. Yeah. The way you talk is going to set off an immediate understanding. In his book, Saying It Well, the subtitle is Touching Others with Your Words. This whole book is a powerful and wonderful book, but the thing I like most about it is this single sentence. 
learning to do things well takes time. I think most of you know that. Learning to do things well takes time. Richard just didn't all of a sudden play here for the first time ever. His whole life has been devoted to playing that guitar in part. Usually in order to be a skilled individual, it takes time and effort. Swindoll wrote, I try not to exhaust the text because I don't want to exhaust the audience. <laughs> I like that. Choice words are always better than more words. When I was Jonathan's age, I didn't know that. I felt it was my duty to tell you everything I know about that text. But that's not helpful. Paul has already told Timothy to exercise gentle authority. Not an iron fist, but a velvet glove. Avoid useless arguments in, in, in verse 11. Later in chapter 5, verse 1. Later in chapter 6, verse 3 and 4. The reason why he's repeating this over and over and over again. Because it's easy to fall into the trap of saying things that ought not to be said. The Bible says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. So here's the instructions. Use speech that builds people up rather than tears them down. And then conduct Again, like I said, this is a reference to lifestyle. It can refer to general behavior or specific behavior. We're to conduct ourselves, and here's the, the key. As representatives of Jesus Christ, your job, even though whether you like it or not, if you go to this church, when people watch you and they ask the question, where do you go to church? and you say Calvary Chapel, they're gonna judge our church by what you say and do. John MacArthur went to a prison. He's in death row. <laughs> and this death row inmate says to John MacArthur, I love your ministry, I love your teaching, I love everything that you do. And John MacArthur says, tell me again, how did you know about our I used to go to your church, he goes, People are watching you. And you might think it's unfair that people judge Christians and Christianity and Christ and the gospel message by what you say and do. You may think that's grossly unfair. And it may be. For some, the only church that they will ever attend is watching your life played out in the real world. When our actions don't reflect Christ or his character, it becomes very difficult to hear the truth. And now love. Now, again, I want you to see where we're at in the sentence. Imagine you say the right thing, that's speech. You do the right thing, that's conduct. 
but you have less than a noble motive in your heart. Everything Jesus said and did was motivated by love. I want you to, again, think about the, the order of the sentence. Say the right thing. Do the right thing. Love. Why? Because it's love that motivates what we say and what we do. It's love that sent Jesus to the planet Earth. Everything, everything, everything Jesus ever said or did was motivated, grounded, rooted in the love of God. And again, remember the most famous sentence in all of the New Testament, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God's love gave us, it was God's love that gave us God's revelation. In what sense? in the sense of the world in which we live, in what sense, in the sense of the Bible that we read, in what sense, in the, in the sense of the Savior that we serve. And so we have to ask the question, are we motivated by love? Is what we're saying and doing, is it motivated by love? And I wish I could say here, and, and keep a straight face, I wish I could say to you, everything I do is motivated by love, but it wouldn't be true. It would be a lie, but I want it to be true. I'm so tired of saying things and doing things, but missing the point. I literally have to remind myself, Gino, why are you doing this? I have to remind myself, so don't get discouraged, don't feel bad, don't, don't feel bad when you simply ask yourself this question, why am I doing what I'm doing? Love means doing what's right toward the object of our love. Love isn't legalism or license. Augustine wrote, where there is love, there is trinity, a lover, beloved, and a spring. Someone said, love to God purifies and enables every taste and desire. It intensifies every affection. It brightens every worthy pleasure, unquote. Nothing will motivate a mother more than her love for her child. Martin Luther suggested, quote, to love God is to hate oneself and to know nothing apart from God, unquote. In today's culture, when some Christians say, God loves you, they mean God affirms and supports your feelings and identity, even when those feelings and identity contradict the revelation of the scripture or what God has said on the subject. Love your neighbor now means affirm and support your neighbor quite apart from biblical truth. But that isn't true. That isn't love. God doesn't affirm sin and rebellion. You've heard it said over and over again. Love the sinner, hate the sin. 
You've heard it said, now you go, okay, how am I supposed to do that? How do I do that? How do I love this person and hate their sin? How do I do it? We have to remind ourselves what love really means. It isn't an unconditional affirmation of feeling and identity. It is, in fact, a willingness to do what's in their best interest and what is right. And when you're a mom and a dad, and your child says to you, it's in my best interest to eat this whole bag of candy. <laughs> Somebody has to say, that's not true. It's in my best interest to do whatever I want with whoever I want. That's not true. Love in the Bible doesn't require us to misrepresent God. Love in the Bible does not require us to misrepresent Jesus or the plan of salvation. Love does not require us to abandon the Bible's teachings on the subject of creation, the fall, gender, sexuality, or marriage. And so as we go through the list, look what it says, faith. Paul uses the term faith in the context of speech. Remember what we've already said. Watch what you say. Watch what you do. Watch your motives. Here, I almost certainly suspect that faith means what God has told us about Jesus and about the Bible. In other words, faith is believing what God has said about himself and about the subject at hand. And that gives us hope. It also provides an explanation for our speech. That is, our faith informs what we're saying. Our faith informs what we're doing. Our Faith informs our motives, our conduct, speech, conduct, love. Faith gives us the opportunity for a fair hearing. The moment that we have a fair hearing, now we can say, what, what has God said on this subject? What has the Bible revealed on this subject? What has God said and done in Christ concerning whatever it is that we're dealing with? I'm also going to suggest to you that here, faith almost certainly includes the element of faithfulness and purity. The word Paul uses includes the elements of chastity, virtue. Again, in the ancient world, as well as the modern world, the word that Paul uses for purity, even when he's writing it to Timothy in the first century, is an archaic word, seldom heard, rarely spoken. In the Greek culture and the Roman culture, purity and chastity was laughed at. But again... I think what Paul is talking about is honesty, integrity, consistency, and here purity, I think, includes the ideas of authenticity, transparency, 
And again, I think it's also a reference to sexual conduct. Here, it almost certainly has to include moral, clean, honest. Even if you don't completely understand what this means, it's an invitation to walk away from impurity. We walk away from greed. We walk away from lust. We walk away from sexual immorality. And so here's the bottom line. Our lives, our lives should reflect the presence of Jesus in our heart and in our life. And because Jesus is in our heart and in our life, remember, he's in our speech. He's in our conduct. He's in what's motivating us. He's, he is the explanation of our faith. These are the things that mark our private and public life. Now we can understand the rest of the passage. Verse 13, the servant's spiritual maturity. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Now when he says, till I come, doesn't mean, oh, do all of these things till I get there, and then when I get there, you can abandon all of these things. That's, that's not what it means. Have your parents ever said to you, behave till I come back? And you, you thought that meant, okay, I'll be good till they get back, but when they come back, all bets are off. That's not what it means. Paul's plan is to return to Ephesus. Remember, we already learned that in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Remember, he's in this area called Macedonia. He wants desperately to come back and see Timothy and the, and the rest. The expression, give attention to reading, most likely means the public reading of the scripture in the worship service. It may mean the public reading of the Old Testament documents. But I'm going to suggest to you that it probably means even more. In my reading of it, I think it means a kind of reading that gives a detailed attention to scholarship. You remember, I ask you to read your Bible, and you go, that seems fair, Gino. Now I want you to read it in Hebrew, and I want you to read it in Greek, and then I want you to compare it with the Aramaic languages, and I also want you to to do two or three other kinds of comparisons, and you go, that's not for me. And I get it. There's a detailed and disciplined reading that some people are capable of. When I think he says, give attention to reading, he's talking to Timothy that Timothy is supposed to give careful attention to detailed scholarship. And the reason why I think this is important is because the pastor's focus has to be on the study of the Bible and then the public presentation of the Bible. You know what I tell people? Being a pastor is like having a final due twice a week for the rest of your life. See, you laugh until you, you know, now you don't have a Wednesday service anymore. And you go, okay, a final once a week for the rest of your life. But it's not true. When you pay attention to the scripture, 
when you give detailed attention to the scripture, it's going to serve you every day. So exhortation, look what it says, give attention to reading and exhortation. I'm going to suggest to you that exhortation almost certainly is a reference to preaching. The word doctrine is teaching. And the word doctrine has fallen out of favor in contemporary Christian circles. People say, why do we have to pay such attention to doctrine? Doctrine's not a bad thing. Doctrine is a good thing. It's the systematic teaching of the principles of Christianity. Doctrine simply means teaching about God, teaching about Jesus, teaching about the Holy Spirit, teaching about man and salvation, the church and scriptures, angels and demons, Satan and the last things. So Paul urges Timothy to perform three basic duties that's fundamental to every single minister and ministry. The public reading of the scripture and the private study, I think, of the, of the scripture. The exhortation to the people to live out their life in light of what the Bible says. And then to teach them what the scriptures mean. Let me be blunt. Every pastor is a, is, is a Bible student. This is why later he's going to say, prepare, study to show yourself approved, a workman who need not have to give explanation. So every pastor is a Bible student and every church, every church is supposed to be a Bible church. We're to preach and teach the Bible. Now again, like I said, in this context, exhortation or preaching, I think means the same thing. But let me help you. Teaching is telling you what the text says. Preaching is exhorting you to do what it says. So for the person who says, I don't like it when people preach to me. Well, then let's try and use a different word. Think of me as your Bible life coach. <laughs> See, you're laughing. I'm not a big fan of the word life coach. I think it's just a contemporary word that we use to soften the word preacher. Your coach is a preacher. When your coach says do one more pull up or push up, when your coach says run harder and faster, when the person says think harder, your math teacher, your science teacher, your whatever this person's doing, any person who says, do you want to be able to do this? Can you imagine being at your job and you say to your boss, stop preaching to me! And you say, do you want to or do you not want to be able to do this job? I need you to do the job. And I need you to do it right. And so in this context, preaching is urging you to do what the information asks. We warn, we advise, we urge people to apply the word of God to their life. That's the pastor's job. Well, what if I'm not a pastor? 
well, then you should be able to use this information to know what constitutes a healthy pastor and a healthy church. You should be able to say, wait a minute, how come these people never opened up the Bible? How come they never told me what it says? How come they never encouraged me to do what it says? It should be able to tell you about what is healthy in a church. It should be able to tell you, hey, wait a minute, are the leaders of this church examples in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity? And you might say, some of you are. Some of you aren't. Some of you are inconsistent examples. By the way, that means we should try more. Your criticism should be well taken. You should be able to say, I expected more. I needed more from you. I needed you to do what the Bible says. Remember the Bible says, be kind to one another. Be tender-hearted, loving one another. I needed you to do that. So what are the pastor's gifts? What are your gifts? What evidence is there in your church that the leaders are exercising this gift? And so Paul says to Timothy in verse 14, don't neglect the gift that's in you, which was given to you by prophecy and the laying on of the hands of the eldership. So Paul exhorts Tim Timothy, do not neglect amelo, his spiritual gift. Did someone prophesy over Timothy? Did someone impart some supernatural spiritual gift? Or was Timothy's gift revealed by a prophetic word? The answer seems to, in part, lie in Paul's statement. Look what it says. With the laying on of hands of the eldership, that means the presbytery, the, the word here, presbuteron. It, it's used only in the New Testament here and in Luke twenty two sixty six, and in Acts 22, 5. In the other places where it's used, it's always a reference to the Jewish Sanhedrin. So it seems to me that there must have been some sort of formal meeting of spiritual leaders who gathered together, who recognized and identified that Timothy had some sort of supernatural ability that we call leadership or the ability to understand the gospel, teach the, the gospel, impart the gospel. But here's the important part. The leaders acknowledge the gift. This isn't something that Timothy just all of a sudden decided, you know what, I need a job. I think I'm gonna be a preacher. In high school, my English teacher said, Mr. Geraci, will you please shut your mouth? Do you think people will pay to hear you speak? <laughs> Are there jobs like that? 
see, we laugh. But this job isn't just a job about imparting information. The gifts that Timothy received were evident and confirmed by the leaders in the church. Do you want to know if you have a gift of teaching? Then teach. If 50 people show up, that's great. If 20 people then show up the next week, it's still not the end of the world. If at the third week it's just your wife and kids, then the chances are maybe you're not gifted to teach. Usually the proof is going to be in the pudding. And so Paul, in effect, is saying, don't be careless about the gift you received. I'm going to suggest to you, at your ordination, perhaps the gift pastor, teacher, or prophecy, or some combination of these gifts were, were, were recognized and then encouraged in him. Be constantly careful about these things, Paul will say in verse 15. The laying on of hands was sometimes used for ordination. Sometimes it was used in a cultural way. Sometimes it was used in a physical or literal way of of a, of a sign, if you will, or a symbol of the exercising of the transfer of authority and leadership. It's this physical gesture of empowerment. And so whatever it means and however it means, I'm going to suggest to you that Paul is trying to remind Timothy that his gifts and callings have been recognized by spiritual leaders in the church, and so he's not to neglect it. We have an expression, use it or lose it. Paul may have had some concern that Timothy might be tempted to ignore or neglect his gift. Now, Paul doesn't specifically define the gift, but it's evident from the context. What does this have to do with you? It has everything to do with you if for some reason over the years you've known inside of your heart that God has called you and gifted you in a unique way. There are spiritual gifts that you possess and the combination in which you possess them and the circumstances that you find yourself in are unique only to you. God has placed you strategically in certain circumstances and you might be asking and answering the question right at this very moment. Have I been stirring up the gift or have I been neglecting the gift? Have I been ignoring the words that God has been trying to say to me? And so in verse 15, he says, meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. That word meditate means carefully consider over and over again. In the Old Testament, it had the meaning of like chewing on the cud and, and a, a cow will swallow the grass and then 
barf up the grass and chew it some more and swallow it. It's gross when it comes to cows, but it's perfect when it comes to your to chew on the word and the revelation of God. You're to think about it, consider it, think about it, consider it, swallow it, consider it some more. And so he says, meditate on these things. What things? What I've been telling you for the last couple of weeks. Be a good minister in verses 1 through 6. A godly minister in verses 7 through 12. A growing minister in verses 13 through 16. What things? Be an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. In what things? Focus on the Bible. Know it. Love it. Live it. Teach it. Encourage others to do it. What things? Don't neglect your gift. What things can we add? Be a spirit-led leader, Romans 8, 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So what is your spiritual gift? What is your unique spiritual calling? How is it being used in the church and in, in Jesus' service? Have you neglected your gift? Have you ignored your gift? Have you run away from your gift and calling? Have you identified and cultivated the gifts? Why aren't you using them? Has apathy or neglect caused your gifts to atrophy or shrivel or shrink? If you're not sure about your gifts, re-listen to my messages from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Go back, listen again. Paul tells Timothy... Meditate, pay attention, pay close attention. The expression, give yourself entirely to them. Literally in the original language reads, be in these things. In our culture, we have an idiomatic expression. Dude, what are you into? What do we mean when we say that? What are you into? Cars, boats, planes, whatever. Politics, philosophy, religion. What is it that you're into? What is it that you care about? That's what he's actually saying. I am into fill in the blank. The word progress means to cut forward, move ahead, blaze the way. It means make a kind of a pioneering advance. In the world in which I grew up, it meant boldly go where no one has gone before. My brother and I, when we were kids, we would play Star Trek. He would be Captain Kirk and I would be everybody else on board. And we would have deep space adventures because we would go boldly where no one has gone before. The progress Timothy makes is supposed to be evident to all. It's like when you meet someone that you haven't seen in a while and you go, I can't believe how grown up you are. I can't believe how mature you've become. It's really difficult when you're just around yourself all the time. 
you don't necessarily see the progress. But Paul wants Timothy to make sure that everyone around him knows what's going on. What is it that dominates your life? What is the one thing that won't get done unless you do it? What is the one thing that won't get done unless you do it? I'm not expecting an answer. I'm actually expecting you to just think about that question. And look at verse 16. Take heed to yourselves and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you're going to save both yourself and those who hear you. Now Paul warns Timothy. He says, examine yourself, take heed. It means keep a strict eye, pay close attention. It means keep a strict eye and play, pay close attention because there seems to be the temptation that you could easily let this get away from you. He says, continue in them. Don't stop. Stick with it. See it through. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, but I keep my body under control. I bring it into subjection, lest by any means when I have preached to others, I myself am cast away. Jude 21, keep yourself in the love of God, looking for the mercy of the Lord Jesus unto eternal life. Keep yourself. What does that mean? Keep yourself in the place of constant access to what? To the things of God. To the revelation of God. To the teaching that has been given to you. Do you have to take your Bible wherever you go? I do. I have to take my Bible. You might go, I, <laughs> I have my Bible on my phone. Good for you. Take it wherever you go. Use it as often as you need. Examine and evaluate the doctrine. What does that mean? Pay attention to essential Christianity. Pay close attention. What has he been saying? I want to talk to you about your private life, and I want to talk to you about your public life. Now he's saying, I've talked with you about your private life. I've talked with you about your public life. And I want you to continue thinking about this. Don't stop. And the salvation that Paul mentions is not salvation from sin, which is by grace through faith, but rather the deliverance from the accusations and the dangers that plague every believer in the real world and in the spirit world. Here, save yourself and those who hear you. It means continue to persevere and grow and mature and keep growing and keep growing. I want to help you think just a little bit harder. Paul is exhorting the young Timothy to center the church around the word of God. The way to build the church and the way to equip the, the saints is focus on God's word. Preach it. Teach it. Practice it. 
This is why I think it's such a wonderful thing that Jonathan is exactly in the right place at the right time because he doesn't just simply want you to know it and love it and teach it. He wants you to love it and teach it together in community. Loving it and living it can't just simply happen on Sunday morning between 9 and 10 o'clock. So what's the key to personal growth? The Word of God. And we can think about that in two ways. Personal and pastoral. This caused me to just think about a question that I asked myself of the text, but I wanted to ask you. How can the pastors help you grow? You know what I'm hoping in the next few weeks? I'm hoping that you'll come up to me or you'll come up to Jonathan, you'll come up to the pastors in this church, and you'll have this statement. You can help me grow by, and then say what needs to be said. You can help me grow by, but it's not limited to the pastors. It also includes each other. Imagine if in conversation with the people that you love and you care about, you say, you can help me grow by doing this. And by the way, how can you help the pastors grow? How can you help them grow? What is it that you can say or pray? What is it that you can do? You know, every good pastor wants to be available all the time. Every good pastor wants to be available in times of need. No pastor can afford to waste time. It made me think. What constitutes a waste of time? It's never a waste of time when I'm praying or when I'm reading and preparing. But it's also never a waste of time. It's never a waste of time when I can pray for you, when I can care about you, when I can somehow make the burden a little bit easier for you. Be sensitive to the pastor's time, but pray for your pastors and pay attention to what he preaches. Few things are more discouraging than for me to hear these words. I had no idea what you were talking about. If you really, really, really want to pop my balloon, just say, I have no idea what you were talking about. That doesn't mean I don't need to hear it. I need to be able to say things clearly. And so I can't get any more clearer than this. How can the pastors help you spiritually grow? How? Can you help each other 
grow. Ask the question. Talk about the question. Be prepared to give an answer to the question. Okay? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for these men and women, Lord. I pray for our church. I pray for its future. Lord, I pray for each and every individual who is looking desperately to find out where do I belong? What is it that I should be doing? How can I most effectively love and serve the Lord? And for that person who is empty and shattered, all they're trying to do is just figure out a way to survive the rest of the day. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you will remind them that you're real and that you love them and that you care about them, that sin is something that can, in fact, be forgiven and that hope can be a part of who we are. And so, Lord, again, I pray that each individual would know that you love them and, and that you care about them. That they would know that their sin can be forgiven by simply trusting Christ as Savior. That they can turn from their sin and they can walk with you in humility and obedience and expect you to show up. And so, Lord, we commit these things to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.